leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Kindred Biosciences is looking to leverage the billions of dollars that others have invested in approved drugs by modifying, improving, and repurposing them for the animal market. The company believes it can formulate, develop, and win approval for these medicines for between $3 million and $5 million each in a matter of three to five years and capture markets that range between $10 million and $100 million annually. We spoke to Richard Chin, founder and CEO of Kindred, about the business strategy, the company's pipeline, and the opportunity created by our willingness to spend big money on our pets. Richard, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be uh, talking to you, Danny. We're going to talk about Kindred Biosciences, its business model, and, and the opportunities for drug makers in the animal health space. Let's begin with the, the market opportunity, though. Your, your business model is based in part on the willingness of people to spend money on the health of their pets. What kind of money do people spend on keeping their pets healthy? Well, um, you know, the pharmaceutical spending on pets have been going up very, very quickly. Now it's at uh, over $4 billion a year and growing very rapidly. I think it reflects the overall willingness of pet parents to spend on their pets because um, if you look at something like how much we're spending on Valentine's Day for pets, that, uh, that figure will surprise you, over $700 million a year. Or on uh, knee repair surgeries for dogs, we spend over $1.5 billion a year for ACL repairs on dogs. And that's because pets have become family members. People are sometimes willing to spend more on their pets' health than they are on themselves. And is this, in essence, all out-of-pocket spending? Are there other mechanisms like insurance that's offsetting this? There's a very small fraction of pet parents who have pet insurance, less than 5% right now. So instead of Blue Cross and Blue Shield, uh, the main payers in this space are Visa, Mastercard, and American Express. Okay, we're not going to have we're not going to allow my dogs to listen to this uh, broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Kindred is about repurposing drugs developed for human health and leveraging the investment made by others to target the animal health market. How do development times and costs for your drugs compare to human therapeutics? You know, it's much, much less. Uh, on average, we can develop a drug for pets for $5 million 
as opposed to at least $500 million to develop human drugs. And we can get a drug to market in three to five years versus approximately 15 years it takes on the human side, so much, much faster. Well, you've argued that the veterinarian market is at a tipping point, likening it to the biotech market 30 to 40 years ago. What did you mean by that? Well, if you look at where the human pharmaceutical industry was uh, 30 or 40 years ago, it was just at the golden, the golden phase of uh, pharmaceuticals was when a lot of discoveries were being made, when drugs that worked really well, much better than the previous generation of drugs, were being developed. And before the regulatory uh, requirements became as, uh, as onerous as they are today. If you look at the veterinary side, there's a huge opportunity. It's untapped. Just like uh, much of human uh, uh, unmet medical need was untapped 30 or 40 years ago, there are much lower regulatory hurdles, and uh, there's a lot less competition. So across the entire industry, uh, everything is an echo of what um, uh, uh, the human industry was like 30 or 40 years ago. Animals and humans are often prescribed the same medications, certainly human drugs are tested in animals before they are ever tested in humans. What's the relationship between animal and human biology, and, and how translatable are drugs generally between the two? You know, that is an excellent question, because um, biology of disease in pets and humans are very similar. So dogs and cats get almost all the same diseases we get. Osteoarthritis, cancer, diabetes, lupus, Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, all of these. So if you talk to a veterinarian, they'll tell you that about 80% of drugs that work in people will work in animals. Now, sometimes people say, well, Richard, is that true? Because all these drugs work for cancer in mice, and they hardly ever seem to work in people. And uh, what I say is, well, it's not because you're going from one species to another that you have this difficulty translating um, the, uh, the results. It's because you're going from a model of a disease to an actual disease. So if you took that drug that worked in uh, a mouse that had a clump of cancer cells implanted under its skin, which is not a real tumor, and you gave it to mice with real cancer, it probably wouldn't work either. The key difference here is we're not using animal models, and animal models are designed to look like a disease, but they don't actually... Um, uh, animals don't actually have the disease. We're talking about people with actual diseases, dogs with actual diseases. So if you look at dogs with lymphoma, they get chemotherapy and they respond. If you look at cats with diabetes, they get insulin and they respond. So the, the translation between humans and pets is uh, actually very good. What are the IP issues surrounding the drugs you develop? Are these drugs off-patent? Do you have licensing arrangements? Do you, you develop unique IP around them once you formulate them for animals? Sure. So in general, um, we look for drugs and antibodies that have gone off-patent, and then we modify those molecules. We improve them. We improve life or the formulation so you can give the drug once a day or we take human versions of antibodies, like Humira, and make dog or cat versions of them. And the reason we're doing that is because that's the lowest thing you There's all this 
investment. Billions of dollars of R&D that's been invested in these drugs, and now they're off patent, and we're able to take those and develop it for the benefit. Eventually, we will likely um, start developing drugs that are still on patent, and then we will need licenses. But at this point, uh, we rather not pay royalties and uh, licensing fees, and we don't have to because there are so many really great drugs that are available that we can develop for pet. And how do you think about pricing? You, uh, you mentioned earlier that this is mostly out-of-pocket spending. Does does that give you kind of a range that you're going to have to target pricing even for more expensive drugs like biologics? Yes. Pricing is really important. And I'll make a couple of points. One is that pet owners are willing to spend quite a bit if you deliver a really good drug. Um, they will pay for a valuable drug that has a, has a uh, noticeable or um, um, life-saving effect on their pet. But there is a limit, obviously. The limit is pretty high. Now, the average pet parent in 2017 is willing to spend about $10,000 to save the life of their dog or a cat. So pretty high. Uh, although there's a wide range. The reason that biologics have not been developed until recently, and the reason that we are one of the first um, companies in this field, the Pioneer, is because it was too expensive until recently. So the cost of manufacturing antibodies and other biologics were too high to be economically feasible. But recently, the prices have come down, and now it makes sense uh, from a financial standpoint. And are you doing your own manufacturing? And is, is there some some argument to make for the need for innovations in, in manufacturing to make this more cost-effective? Um, you know, we are doing our own manufacturing, partly because uh, it's technically quite challenging, and there are no contract manufacturers right now that um, manufacture veterinary drugs, and partly because we want to keep the cost down as low as possible. Um, we are absolutely looking at some of the newer technologies. Uh, as you probably know, on the human side, when the cost of goods is not as important as it is on the veterinary side, they tend to be fairly cautious uh, and risk-averse in adopting new technologies. We are being substantially more aggressive. And I think most of our listeners are familiar with the regulatory path forward for a, a, a human therapeutic, but... What is the regulatory path for a veterinary drug? You know, the regulatory um, standards are are similar in the broad sense, uh, in that you do have to show that the drug has efficacy and a good safety profile, but the the bar is lower. So you only need one pivotal study, not two, and you need a hundred animals expo- exposed, not. Um, 1,500 um, or more, as it's on the human side. Um, and you have, to, um, uh, you have to do what's called a target animal safety study, which is done um, in about 40, 48 animals, typically. So um, the FDA does require you to show safety and efficacy, but you can do it uh, without as many subjects, and you can do it much more rapidly. 
And are you able to leverage what's clinically known about these drugs to date? Oh, absolutely. So, number one, we select drugs that have been shown to be safe and efficacious in people. So, right there, it increases our probability of success. A lot of these small molecules have actually been in toxicology studies in dogs. So, uh, we already know that that um, the safety profile will be clean for those animals. Uh, we can also leverage some of the technologies, uh, such as slow-release formulation technologies and other technologies that have been developed on the human side. So that's one of the beauties of our business model is that someone's done a lot of the heavy lifting, um, but they haven't thought of taking that technology and bringing them over for pets, and um, so we're doing that. Uh, how do you go about selecting and prioritizing your pipeline? You've got a, a, a huge range of choices out there. You know, that is one of the challenges because there are a lot of attractive opportunities. So we, we look at, number one, the size of the market or unmet medical need. Number two, we look at the uh, similarity in biology because in about 20% of the cases, the biology is different uh, or the, the pharmacokinetics is different, So for especially for cats because um, cats are 100% carnivores, so their meta metabolic enzymes are quite different from human metabolic enzymes. And as you probably know, a lot of the small molecules that we use are uh, derived from from, from plants, uh, plant chemicals. Um, so we make sure that biology looks right. And then, of course, we do look at the cost of goods. Uh, that's very, very well, let, let's talk about your pipeline. You've got a, a robust mixture of both small molecules and biologics. Uh, from a broad point of view, what's the range of diseases you're looking at? Well, we are looking at uh, the entire gamut of diseases. So everything from cancer to uh, osteoarthritis to diabetes to a lot of other diseases. And we're able to do that because of what I said earlier, which is that it only costs us about $5 million to develop a drug. Well, what are the near-term product opportunities, and, and when do you expect to bring your first products to market? So we're very excited that our first product um, is at the FDA being reviewed, and we expect approval before the end of this year. We have a second product that is also at the FDA, and we expect that to be approved early next year. And then subsequently, we expect average of two products approved per year, which, as you probably know, is quite a, an accomplishment, accomplishment in the biotech sector, um, because most companies, uh, on the human side might get a drug approved maybe every five years. But because the process is much faster and cheaper, uh, we are able to do that. And I would, I should add that as a company, we're only five years old. So uh, having two drugs about to be approved at this stage um, is something that we're quite proud of. And, and what are the, the, the first two products? What are the markets they're addressing? And, and what are the potential size of those markets? So the first drug is for cats that have uh, lost their appetite. And this is a, a serious problem in that um, when cats stop eating, they tend to get thicker and thicker, and they can often actually die um, from organ failure. So uh, we have developed a transdermal 
drugs. Now you put on the inside of the year of the cat. Um, but we haven't given formal revenue guidance um, on our products. But what we have said is that most of our products will be between 10 to $100 million. And to put that into perspective, that's roughly one-tenth the size of uh, of human markets. But as I mentioned earlier, the cost of developing about 100 times less or sometimes 200 times less. Our second product is for fever and horses. And there's nothing approved for fever in horses because horses tolerate NSAID very, very poorly. So um, it's a very common problem, and we have a drug that will uh, control the fever. And, and the drug for the uh, feline weight loss is actually, uh, if, if I understood correctly, is an antidepressant? Uh, yes. So it's you're you're actually using yeah. the drug differently than I guess it was formulated for? or. That's exactly right. This is a drug called mirtazapine, which is approved as an antidepressant in people. But one of the side effects it has is weight gain. It increases the appetite. So we have repurposed the drug, and um, we're using it to treat cats that have stopped eating. And what's the commercialization plan? Will you build your own sales force or, or do this through partnerships and contract arrangements? So we start with a small sales force, and we will partner with distributors. There are several distributors that have hundreds of salespeople each, and they distribute products for multiple veterinary companies. Eventually, we will build up the size of the sales force so that uh, we won't rely on distributors anymore. Uh, and a full-size sales force is about 120 representatives in the veterinary space. So, you know, very doable. Um, uh, in a relatively short period of time. Um, so our plan is self-commercialization because, number one, it's um, something that a small company can handle in a veterinary field. And number two, our goal is to really build into a fully integrated biotechnology company. And um, that's something that there's still um, an opportunity to do in the veterinary field because it is so urgent. And I, I know Kindred is, is publicly traded. Are you financed to do the commercial rollouts and to fund your clinical pipeline right now, or is this something you expect to have to raise additional capital to do? We are very well funded. As of the end of the last quarter, we had over $90 million. And our burn rate is a little over $30 million a year. So with the revenue starting next year, we don't anticipate that we will need um, – a lot of capital in order to become um, cash flow positive. Richard Chin, founder and CEO of Kindred Biosciences. Richard, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.